So we come to Job 31, reading the entirety of this section of God's Word, holy and inspired. Give your attention to the reading of it, Job 31, God's Word. I may I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step is turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat, let, and let what grows for me be uprooted out. If my heart has been enticed toward a woman, if I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down on her. For that would be a heinous crime, that would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. For that would be a fire that consumes as far as Abaddon, and it would burn to the root of all my increase. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant, when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God raises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him, and did not one fashion us in the womb? If I have withheld anything from the poor that the poor desired or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless has not eaten of it. For from my youth, the fatherless grew up with me as with a father and from my mother's womb, I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, if his body was not blessed, has not blessed me and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep. If I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. For I was in terror of calamity from God and I could not have faced his majesty. If I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because, of, because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much. If I had looked at the sun when it shone, or the moon moving in splendor, and my heart had been secretly enticed, and my mouth had kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. If I have rejoiced in the ruin of him who hated me, or exulted when evil overtook him, I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse, if the men of my tent had not said, Who is there that has not been filled with his meat? The sojourner has not uh, lodged in the street. I have opened my doors to the traveler. If I have concealed my transgression, as did Adam, by hiding my iniquity in my bosom, because I stood in great fear of the multitude and the contempt of families terrified me, so that I kept silence and did not go out of doors. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. 
Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. If my land has cried out against me and its furrows have wept together, if I have eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, then let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. As far as the reading of God's word, may bless it to us. So in math class, fairly early on in our education, we learn two simple rules. That is, when it comes to multiplication, a negative number times a positive figure equals a negative, and two negative numbers are multiplied for a positive And at first, this second rule baffles us a little bit. Two negatives equal a positive? How is this? Yet once we understand this rule, we realize that this math rule has actually matched in other parts of our life, especially in how we talk at times. That is, when we desire to praise something as the best, we often pile up negatives. Nothing has never been so amazing. Now, sure, proper English forbids double negatives, but at times we just can't seem to help ourselves. No, never may not be kosher grammar, but it just feels right at times. The only way to express our strong feelings. Thus, in other languages like Greek and Hebrew, double negatives are not improper, but are rather common. So then, as Job finds himself needing to showcase something astronomically positive, the only fitting words he can find are pairs of negatives. He goes the way of a minus times a minus makes a plus. And the positive he paints with negatives is so breathtakingly beautiful, we find ourselves awkwardly stuck between skepticism and amazement, which leads us once again to our Savior. So the never-ending sad song of Job is ringing in his ears, giving him a migraine. After recalling his wonderful past with God's friendship in chapter 29 and his present abasement under shame and suffering with God as enemy in chapter 30, what can Job now do to quiet this dirge in his head? How does one react when your stellar uprightness under God's friendship all of a sudden gets laid waste by physical torment, societal shame, and God's hostile hand? Well, where most of us would shake our fist at heaven, Job does not. Instead, he launches into a long list of oaths of innocence. He takes the time to affirm that no wrongdoing can be credited to his account. Whatever else may be true, Job insists that his righteousness is sound and it needs to be vindicated. And to do this, he commences with a covenant. He brings up a covenant he made with his eyes. Now, eyes represent not just one's vision, but also your desires and your willful knowledge. Yet by this covenant with himself, Job is deliberately bringing God into the picture For a covenant is an oath that binds you to certain obligations and invokes God to adjudicate. 
The Lord is the guarantor of the oath, which means that he will release the appropriate sanctions according to the stipulated performance. God will reward or punish your obedience or lack thereof to the oath. Such a covenant then opens you to a curse. It basically says, if I break my oath, let me be cursed. But it also binds God to do the cursing or the rewarding. In this way, Job attempts to force God to vindicate him. For this whole time, Job has wanted a trial before God to prove that Job is not suffering for some sin he committed. Of course, he despaired of ever getting this desired hearing with God. So now, with a litany of oaths and forensic speech, he forces heaven to hold court for him on earth. Job does not charge God with injustice. He does not pile up slanders against the Lord, but his piety must be vindicated over his friends and over the shame of society. He needs to be shown that he is being afflicted for nothing, and he aches for an explanation from God for why he's suffering. Thus, Job calls a self-malediction down upon his negatives, what he did not do, in order to publish his positive piety. And the list of sins that Job is innocent of is wildly impressive. So first, he applies this eye covenant literally. He swore to his eyes to never look lustfully upon a beautiful woman. Now, for a guy, this is near on impossible. But Job was successful. He never lusted after a lady. He even mentions what the punishment should be for lusting. He says God's portion and heritage for the sin of lust is calamity and disaster, just as it is for other acts of injustice and evildoing. And this stands out because it aligns more with, aligns more with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount than the Mosaic Law. Under the law, lust was clearly a sin, but mercifully God did not punish it. Our Lord, though, said, for lust, one is thrown into Hades. Job then soars higher than the righteousness of the law to match the perfection of the Sermon on the Mount. Additionally, he is sure that God sees all that he does and counts his every step. Nothing in Job is hidden from God, and Job is perfectly fine with that. Go ahead, God, he says, number my steps, for you will not find any of them out of kilter. Next, he disavows walking in falsehood or deceit, which points to hypocrisy of external uprightness while being having internal vice. That is, Job is not double-minded, wearing his righteousness as only skin deep, just feigning to be pious. Indeed, he says, let God weigh him in the scales of righteousness and his integrity will surface bright and clear. Next, Job affirms that he did not swerve from the straight path. He says literally, his heart did not go after his eyes. What a profound image, the heart going after the eyes. This means to cave in to one's desires, to see evil, and then to choose it. But Job never did so. His hands were not stained by acting upon attractive temptations. So also Job is innocent of adultery, verse 9, 
His heart was not seduced by another woman, nor did he seduce or rape another man's wife. To lay in wait at a neighbor's door is the sexual sin of forcing yourself upon a woman. Moreover, he underscores how heinous the sin of adultery and sexual assault is. He says it is villainy, a felony that is to be punished as a criminal offense. Even more so, adultery is consumed by a fire that burns down to abaddon. Its punishment uproots a person's entire life. This points to a post-mortem judgment executed by God himself. Adultery is a crime in man's court, verse 11, and it is an offense in the Lord's court, verse 12. If Job was guilty, he would be doubly arraigned and punished. Next, Job disavows ever denying justice to his servants, male or female. When a lowly maid in his house had a grievance against Job, he heard her out fairly and completely. Indeed, note how the punishment for this sin uh, belongs to the pattern of poetic justice or lex talionis fitting for a covenant. He says if he rejected a servant's complaint, then what could he respond to God in the judgment? That is, if he silenced his slaves, he would be silenced before the Lord's tribunal. Likewise, Job gives the reason for why suppressing the voice of a servant is so criminal. Verse 15 literally says, my creator is his creator in the womb. Job and the slave may have vastly different social statuses, but they have the same creator. Both share the same image of God and so possess the human right for a just and fair hearing. Next, though, Job promises that he never failed at charity. He wasn't stingy with the poor. He didn't deny the widow her needs. Job didn't eat his food all by himself and not share it with the orphan. Instead, he grew up with the orphan like a dad to him, and he guided the widow from birth. That is, to refuse kindness to the widow impoverished would be like a sin against one's own family. Horribly grievous. And he continues to stay within this arena of sins. Next, he says, if he saw a vagabond without any clothes... If there was a homeless person freezing on the roadside with no blanket, he did not keep walking. Instead, Job was the good Samaritan each and every time. He always blessed the naked and cold with the gift of a warm fleece. Similarly, in the city gate, he didn't raise his arm against the vulnerable orphan. Even when he had help to do it, he didn't. That is, when other powerful men would have been his co-conspirators to abuse the orphan, Job could have gotten away with this oppression, twisting the courts to his benefits. And yet he never did. And if he had, then he says, let his arm fall off. If Job raised an oppressive arm, let his arm be chopped off at the shoulder. But there's no way, Job would have corrupted justice against the fatherless because he was so terrified of God. He says the calamitous wrath of God scares him to death. Job is completely helpless before the majesty of the Most High. 
Here, Job confesses the purity of his fear of the Lord. His dread of the majestic fury of the Lord is complete and pervasive. Fear of God constrains his every thought and act. Next, Job swears off misusing money, verse 24. He says he never put his trust in gold. He never called silver his confidence. Likewise, Job didn't rejoice in his massive bank account. Swimming in his money bin like Scrooge McDuck was not his source of happiness and pleasure. Here, Job reveals how gold and silver can become idolatrous. People trust in money. They boast in cold, hard cash. People seek joy in large sums of dough. Us humans are quick to kneel down to the altar of mammon. We give our fealty to gold as if it was godlike. But Job did not do this. And he had lots of money. If, if it, it's, sometimes it's easier not to worship money when you don't have any. But if your bank account is overflowing, idolizing money becomes more contagious. Being rich may be God's blessing, but it's one that comes with more temptations and dangers. Job, though, avoided all of these. He didn't put his trust in money, nor did he look to silver for all his pleasure. And speaking of false trust, Job also never participated in astral worship. This phrase, to look at the sun or to gaze at the moon, refers to the idolatrous veneration of the heavenly bodies. Thus his heart was not enticed, and his hand literally did not kiss his mouth. This refers to the idolatrous temptation and worship of the heavenly bodies. Thus Job swears that he's innocent of all idol worship, his eye was never captivated by the moon as the queen of heaven. Moreover, he admits how criminal is such idolatry. He says it deserves to be punished in court, it's a felony against justice, and to do so is also to deny God. To kiss a golden bull renounces and repudiates the one true God. The human heart is an assembly line of idols, but not Job's heart. His mind never manufactured an idol to abandon the Lord. This is so impressive, it's hard to believe, and it only gets more so. Next, Job forswears that he never rejoiced in the demise of his haters. For sure, Job had his haters and enemies, but when evil befell them, he didn't throw a party. More so, Job never even prayed to curse his foes. No imprecations for him. Schadenfreude and revenge are sins unknown to Job. And this is shocking because, again, such righteousness exceeds the law. Under the Mosaic, there was a category of enemies that Israel was to execute, pray curses upon, and be happy in their destruction. To love one's enemy was not an obligation for the Israelites, but it was for Jesus. Love for foes expresses the perfection of the Heavenly Father, and it it is a beacon of his common grace. And this, too, Job wore like a supermodel. Next, Job never fell short in the lofty duty of hospitality. The men of his tent, these are his good friends— 
and they wish that they were not full with his meat. That is, around his table, they were never left hungry by Job's hospitality. His food was so delicious, they were sad when they were stuffed, but they still wanted to keep eating. Similarly, the table of Job was open to travelers. He never let a tourist spend the night in the street. Sojourners always had an invitation. Hotel Job never read no vacancy. Friend and stranger feasted around Job with or with Job around his warm table. And the next sin that Job disavows is climactic in this long list. Verse 33. This verse literally reads, I did not cover my sin as did Adam. Yes, Job brings up Adam and what he did in Genesis 3. After he ate the fruit, Adam covered himself in fig leaves and hid deep within the trees of the garden. Adam tried to conceal his transgression to escape God's judgment. But not Job. When little sins did stick to Job, he openly confessed them. Without delay, he repented and he made it right. Thus note the poetic justice had he disguised his iniquity. Then he would have been terrified and scared of public tumult and the scorn of the clans. That is, punishment for keeping sin secret is open reproach and shame. Yet what is noteworthy about this climactic sin that he is innocent of is that it places him as better than Adam. Job confesses that his righteousness surpassed that of Adam. Where Adam failed, he prevailed. Adam broke the covenant that he was under, but Job is a covenant keeper. Thus, with this gold medal of righteousness pinned upon his chest, Job now wishes for a hearing with God. He prays that God would hear him. His oaths of innocent Job has put in writing and he signed it in his own hand. Job has submitted his sworn affidavit of his uprightness, and so the Lord must respond in writing. He filed his righteousness in heaven, and the divine counsel cannot be silent. This is the trial of vindication that Job needs so badly. This is the goal that he's striving for. This is what he's been trying to force with all these covenantal oaths. Moreover, look at Job's confidence for the prospect of such a hearing. He says, if God wrote out a verdict, he would wear it proudly as a crown upon his head, a badge upon his shoulder to show it off to all. Then there's more. Verse 37, Job would count all his steps to God. This links back to verse 4, when he offered God to count all his steps. Now, for God to count Job is for the Lord to give him a thorough judicial evaluation to examine him completely. But now Job says, God, you don't need to count, for I've counted for you. Job performed his exhaustive self-examination so much that the Lord doesn't even have to do it. He did God's judging for him, so all God has to do is issue the stamp of approbation. Job made it easy for God. He did all the hard work of investigating and weighing the evidence. Job judged himself with the very holy eyesight of God. 
So the Lord merely has to publish the verdict of righteous. Job has reached the pinnacle of his argument. This is the crescendo of his double negative oaths and really everything he said since chapter 3. Every negative has been excluded so that all that remains is a magnificently glowing positive. But as fits the Hebrew style, Job tacks on one more sin that he's innocent of. The land does not cry out against him. He didn't steal another man's crops without paying to leave him malnourished. Job's hands have never touched the forbidden fruit of theft. And if he had, then let him be accursed. If he's guilty, let thorns and stinkweed cover his fields. And this curse echoes the common curse. For Adam's disobedience, thorns and thistles invaded the land. Job, though, outperformed the obedience of Adam. But had he failed like Adam, then he too should be cursed as a covenant breaker with nasty thorns and stinging nettles. And with this, Job goes silent. Thus finishes the many words of Job. Ever since chapter 3, Job has always had more to say. He was ever eager to grab the microphone to give another speech. The friends ran out of words a while ago, but finally Job has come to the end of his words. And his silence is a loud demand for God to speak. Job has said his peace. He has filed his legal paperwork, and now it's God's turn to respond, and he cannot remain quiet. And yet, there's a deeper sense to these this finishing of God's word, or Job's word. The word here for ended is the same one that's been used over and over for Job's uprightness and integrity. It's the word for blameless and above reproach. Thus, this line means the words of Job are blameless. Moreover, this line comes not from the lips of Job, but from the narrator. When a character praises himself in a story, it may not be reliable. We are rightly skeptical of characters in a story until they're proven so. But when the narrator makes a judgment, it is reliable and accurate. And so to dispel our doubts about Job's innocent, the narrator certifies that his words are spotless. To keep us rolling our eyes at Job for being hyperbolic, the narrator states, blameless. Therefore, Job's oaths are true. His double negatives do equal a positive. Job completed the covenant with his eyes. No lust, oppression, hatred, or idolatry can be credited to his account. Even his small sins he confessed and made right. The righteousness of Job is better than Adam's. Hence, we cannot but be amazed. Job really was this good. His uprightness surpassed that of the Pharisees, his piety soared beyond the law of Moses to fulfill the righteousness of the Sermon on the Mount. Job, then, is a model for us to follow. 
His oaths of innocence are heart-searching moral probings for us. Before Job's superior obedience, we all look pathetic. To never lust, none of us succeed in this. To not worship money, to not produce idols of the heart, we're not guiltless of these. Stingy hands, perverted truth, and scorning the vulnerable, these are sins we have all committed. In front, of the glo- in front of the glowing righteousness of Job, the darkness of our iniquities is laid bare. Indeed, so near to perfection is Job, we wonder if there's anything amiss in him or in what he says. Well, there's nothing wrong in what he says, but there is in how he says it. Job's error is not in content. But in form, it's his tone. Namely, in his confident confident demeanor, there is a refusal to submit. In the last chapter, he listed all the bitter curses that were chewing on him, and now he swears that he deserves none of these curses. He proves that he is suffering for nothing, which is true, but his tone is that he will not put up with it. Job will not charge God with injustice. He will not slander God's holy name. But in light of his righteousness, Job insists that he should not have to be, have to put up with this suffering. In Job's mind, his stellar righteousness means that he should not have to submit to such suffering for nothing. Being inflicted for curses, with curses for crimes he did not commit, Job's not willing to do this. Hence, the Lord must vindicate him. God must issue an explanation for the evil providences that Job is enduring. And in this, we are shepherded to Christ in two ways. First, the superior righteousness of Job is a glorious witness to the perfect righteousness of Christ as the true last Adam. To be vindicated by God's court, a righteousness greater than Adam must be obtained. And this Jesus did to fulfill the covenant that he had with the Father for our sakes. To never lust after a woman, to never hate your hater, to never fashion an idol in the heart, these are the real perfections of Jesus. Job had imperfections that he did not hide and he confessed. Christ, though, had no impurities or shames to conceal. From the cradle to the grave, Jesus could stand before the holy gaze of the Father unashamed. This is the active obedience of Christ that merited heaven for you. Secondly, though, Jesus outperformed Job in his willingness to submit to suffering. Job's tone here sounds like, Lord, thy will not be done. But while sweating blood, Jesus prayed, thy will, not mine, be done. On the cross, Jesus bent the knee to suffer for nothing, to be tortured for not his sins, but for ours. 
Job was unwilling to become sin for others. But Christ, the righteousness of God, became sin for us. He died under our curse. Our depravity was imputed to him, and he bore the everlasting wrath of God so that you do not have to. Jesus tasted the bitterness of your condemnation so that there's no more condemnation for you. This is the superior passive obedience of Christ for you. Christ submitted to the flames of hell upon that God-forsaken tree to liberate you from the fire that burns down to abandon, sin and eternal death. This is the amazing salvation that we have by grace through the great exchange. Our sin being put upon Christ and his righteousness reckoned to us. And because Jesus was the last Adam for you, you have the imperishable protection of Jesus from wrath and curse. Job or as Job lists all the punishments that sin deserves, um, if he was guilty, we read what we deserve. From lust to sexual sin, the fire of God burns in Sheol unquenched. Oh, how we daily deserve these flames, but in Christ, you'll never be burned by them. God justified you in Christ so that no one condemn you, not even your own conscience. Thus praise the Lord for the imputation of Christ's active and passive obedience as a gift of grace. Thank God for justification in Christ, no hope without it. So then, to the praise of God's glorious grace, may we always submit to the hard providences that the Lord has in store for us. For we are not as good as Job, but when we suffer like our Savior, we are comforted that we too also share in his eternal love that never lets us go. And praise the Lord for that. Amen. Let's pray.